Well, parents, if you still have kids who you're waiting to send off to Sunday school now, would be a good time to do that. Um, as they do that, why don't the rest of us quiet our hearts for a moment and pray as we prepare to hear from God's Word. Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your Word in community, that we can gather as a church um, and hear the Word that you have given to us that we have the only word of God in a book that we can read, um, and just how incredible it is to know that this is true uh, in the face of all else. Father, help us now, prepare our hearts to hear from your word, speak by your spirit um, to each of us. Father, use my words um, to teach and encourage and challenge. Just help us to do this time well together. Uh, that we would be encouraged, your church would be built up, and you would be glorified. Amen. So I have a bit of a confession to make, and uh, this is the perfect time to do it because Rusty's not here, so you can't fire me because you want a pastor. I really don't like Christmas carols. Um, I'm not going to get into the reasons here. I promise I'm not a Scrooge. I love the season of Christmas. And there are some carols that I really enjoy, but for the most part, not a huge fan, which makes it kind of funny that this is the series that I'm kicking off. Um, the point of this series is to take lines from some of these, oh, thank you, to take lines from some of these carols that maybe we don't often think about just how deep these hymn writers managed to get, to take some of these lines that, we're kind of so used to just singing and actually really dig into them and think about what they mean and how that idea is taught in Scripture. So this morning, as we kick off this series, um, we're starting with the carol that we just sung, and you'll see that theme play out over the course of the next few weeks. And so the line that we're really wanting to focus in on is one of the, the core ideas from that song. It's the line, joy to the earth. So today... As we take a look in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 through 30, um, I want to, first of all, look at what it means that because of Christ there is joy to the earth, not just to individual people, not just to the church, but to the earth, the, the planet, right, the, the physical earth itself, and then also to go beyond that and look at why it matters, and how that relates to us, and how we can be encouraged and challenged by the truth of what is coming for the earth. So we'll be in Romans 8, like I said, and Romans is probably my favorite book in the entire Bible. Um, there is no book that has shaped how I view God and myself more than the book of Romans. Um, it's Christ-exalting. It has a huge focus on justification, on, on Christ's righteousness being put on us, uh, I had the privilege of leading a Bible study through the book of Romans and seeing one of my friends start the Bible study, not a believer, and ending the study a believer. So I've seen God work specifically through this book to draw someone to himself. And we're diving in not only to my favorite book, but to what is probably the high point in the entire book, if not the high point in all of Scripture in Romans chapter 8. I've heard it called the Mount Everest of the Bible. Within this chapter are insane promises and incredible assurances for those who are in Christ. This section helps put into perspective all Christian suffering while teaching some mind-blowing truths about how God cares for us and, as we'll see today, also gives us a really cool glimpse about what God intends to do with the earth that we are living on right now. 
So we'll be jumping in, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. I'll read those, and then we will begin. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the, revel- the, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So when we start at verse 18, we're kind of jumping in mid-thought. And you can see that because the sentence starts with the word for. And realistically, with, with any Bible reading at all, a key to understanding what is being said is context. We need to know where we're coming from to understand what is being said. So as I kind of alluded to, the book of Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament. Um, And then to really set up as we head into verse 18 here, we have to realize what he was talking about in verses 16 and 17. He writes, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, so the context is that Paul is talking about Christian suffering. And not only Christian suffering, but that Christians suffer in order that they may later be glorified. They suffer like Christ so that they can be glorified like Christ or with Christ. And he says, bearing in mind Christian suffering, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, for someone to say that, you kind of have to understand the suffering that they've gone through, right? Because, you know, if his life has been very simple to this point, I mean, it's an easy statement to say. Um, so it's really helpful that in the book of 2 Corinthians, we actually have a list of some of the sufferings that Paul went through. Reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten by rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food. 
in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul had not faced a small amount of suffering. He had gone through significantly more than I think any of us will face in most of our lifetimes. And yet, when he says that he considers that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is coming, that word considers essentially means that he sat down and he thought about it for a while. He took his time. He weighed everything that he had gone through, and he weighed what he knew was coming because of the promises of God. And the result that he came to was, eh, it's not even close. What's coming is so much better than my sufferings that they really aren't even worth considering. They're not worth caring about in light of what is coming. And I think we as North American Christians really struggle to understand the depth of this verse, right? I mean, the extent of our Christian suffering for Christ might be a coworker who bullies us, a schoolmate who bullies us, might be people giving us weird looks when we talk about going to church on Sunday. I don't know. It's, it's not very much. So I think to help understand the weight of this statement, we need to think back to a group of people we were talking about not too many months ago, the, the church in Afghanistan, right? This heavily persecuted church. For those of you who might remember, we shared some of these stories from this stage on a Sunday morning. They had to mark red X's on their doors to show if there were girls there that the Taliban could kidnap to take as wives for their soldiers. There were Christians fleeing to the mountains in the hopes of crossing borders and escaping from the country, only to be turned away by the other countries. There was a story of a pastor who received a letter that simply said, we know who you are, what you do, and where to find you. So Paul's point is that even as Christians around the world face suffering to that extent, that what they are facing doesn't compare to the glory that is coming. They're they're not equally high on a scale. It's that the suffering ultimately is going to look like nothing, and the glory is going to be infinite. It's going to be immense. And that we endure this suffering now for the sake of the glory that is going to come. That word glory It kind of forms bookends in this section. Paul brings it up here in verse 18, and then again a little bit later, verses 28, 29, 30, he talks about it again. So here, it's the glory that is to be revealed to us, or for those of you who have NIV Bibles, it says in us. Essentially the same meaning. Uh, This glory that is coming is the image of God fully restored in his people. It's the time when when we are made what we were supposed to be, when what Adam and Eve were like before they sinned is is recreated across all of God's people, this this perfection, this sinlessness, this unbroken relationship with God through Christ. That's the glory that is to be revealed. Paul is looking forward to the time when everything is going to be made right. That's how he endures the suffering of today, of, of right now, the things that he is going through. He continues, verses 19 through 23, he writes, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption 
of our bodies. So in verse 19, you'll note that word for again. He's, he's building an argument. That's kind of what this whole section is. Paul is just building on this thought process and continuing to put together a whole argument that he is uh, going to essentially bring to a climax in the last few verses of this chapter. So what does the for mean here? So essentially, um, because creation is, is eagerly longing for this restoration that's coming, that's what we're looking forward to. Um, and again, the, the thought process he goes through is going to get potentially hard to follow. So at the end, I am going to try to summarize his whole argument in about a paragraph. So if you have a hard time tracking, I will do my best to knit it all together at the end. But what Paul's doing here is he's personifying creation, right? He's giving it these human attributes that it's, it's waiting, it's hoping, it's been subjected to something, it's, it's groaning. So one Bible scholar kind of paraphrased this idea, and he wrote, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. Right? It's this anticipation, this, this patient and painful anticipation of future restoration. But why is creation the way that it is? Right? That's a question that comes out of this. So why is it this way? And ultimately, the text says that it's because it's been subjected by somebody, and the text is not immediately clear, but if you go back to Genesis 3, it's pretty clear that creation was subjected to this fate by God. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of Adam and Eve, we read, to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So creation is broken because of our sin. It's not right. It's not what it's supposed to be. Sin doesn't just corrupt people, individuals. It corrupts everything. The world has been broken by our failure. But creation itself is looking forward to the time where, where it will be restored. And as Paul says, that's the time when the sons of God, which is true believers in Christ, are fully revealed. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be fully revealed? I, well, I think that means when Christ returns, and it is evident from across all history who those people were, at that time, the sons of God, the children of God are fully revealed and everything is made right. It's put back to be what it was supposed to be. And, you know, I think there's something really interesting here because I don't know if our immediate thought when we see the beauty of creation is that it's broken, right? I don't know. Some of you have probably been to the Grand Canyon, to Niagara Falls. You've seen the incredible beauty that exists in our world. But what this shows us is that that beauty is still limited, that's actually not what it's supposed to be. That, that sense of awe and breathlessness when we see the beauty of creation, we're only really seeing in part what it could be. And one day we will see what it was intended to be when Christ returns and it's made completely right. And that's a key. It, it's not that it's destroyed. It's that it's, it's remade. It's renewed. The whole earth will be restored to essentially be like the Garden of Eden, what God initially intended this beautiful place of creation where man was able to dwell with God in perfect relationship. And we get a bit of a glimpse of this in Isaiah chapter 11. 
This is the most crazy description of what we're going to see. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cows and the bears shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So this remade world is one that in some ways is the same, right? Animals that we can recognize, lions and cows and snakes, but also very, very different. Children playing with cobras, lions and cows just hanging out, eating grass together. It's familiar enough that we can conceive of it, but so different that we know that things can't exist that way with how the world is now. That's the joy that is coming to the earth. When, when the total redemption happens, the earth is going to be so different. It's going to be so much better. It's going to be what God intended for it to be. But until then, creation groans in the pains of childbirth. That's the illustration that Paul uses. And even though I have never given birth, nor ever will, I think it's kind of a brilliant illustration, and and hopefully the moms in the room can kind of agree. Because in childbirth, there's obviously suffering. It's painful to bring forth children. But in the midst of that suffering, there's hope. You know that at the end of this time of suffering, that there's something amazing that is coming. And that's the way that creation exists right now. It knows that how things are is not correct, but it suffers in this hope of what is coming, in this hope of of something greater, something that completely outweighs the suffering. Because I'm pretty sure if I asked all the mothers in the room right now who feel now that the suffering wasn't worth it to raise their hand, not a single hand is going to go up right? The suffering is worth it. And that's the suffering that creation is going through right now. It's important to note that in the section when Paul uses the word hope, it's more meaning confident expectation than sort of just a fleeting desire, right? So not a child throwing out like, oh, I hope I get a bike for Christmas, but more like someone facing a difficult challenge and saying, I know that this pain ends in great joy. It's a confident expectation of what is coming even though circumstances may not make it a very fun time to be going through. Creation, though, isn't the only thing groaning, right? In this section, Paul says that just like creation groans, so we grow, groan inwardly. Those of us who, he says, have received the first fruits of the Spirit. Bit of a weird phrase. Um, I think Paul uses a slightly different phrase to make the same point in the book of Ephesians. So I'll use his wording there where he describes the Holy Spirit as a deposit or a down payment in the children of God. As a couple who just bought a house a little over a year ago, we understand this better now, right? When you put that down payment on a house, you know that that's a guarantee to the bank that more is coming. It's not the full amount. It's nowhere near the full amount, but it's that guarantee that you will be able to follow through on what you have said you were going to do. So the spirit in us, when we are saved, when, when, the Father fills us with his Spirit, it is the guarantee of all these things that are going to happen. 
The Spirit in us guarantees that God will keep his promises, that he will save his people, that we will be resurrected and with him forever. And we'll come back to this idea of groaning in a moment, but it's also kind of weird that Paul says that we are waiting for our adoption. Because just a few verses earlier, in verse 15, he writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So Paul is saying that we've already been adopted, but we're waiting for a time when we're going to be more adopted, which sounds a little weird and has led theologians to coin the term already not yet, to deal with these ideas where it is something that in one sense has already happened. We are already children of God as those who are in Christ. But when he returns in some way that we will never wrap our heads around on this earth, we will be more adopted. We will be more the children of God at that time. But let's go back to the groaning, right? Creation groans in expectation of what's coming. And Paul says believers should be groaning as well. And and that's the key, is that we should be. This world shouldn't satisfy us. We should be aware of the fact that it's broken, that there are things here that don't make sense, that we shouldn't be perfectly happy and comfortable in this life. You know, growing up, I would hear people throw around the phrase, oh, that person is is too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. Um, I'm going to be honest, I don't know if there has been a single person in the history of the church who was too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. I think likely most of the church has spent its time being too earthly-minded to be of any heavenly good. We're so distracted. We're so comfortable. We get so caught up in the things of this world, in pursuing careers, in making money, in pursuing our desires, doing these things that we love that ultimately are going to pass away because this earth is not in its complete form yet. And when we start to feel that discontentment, right, we start to feel like, oh, there's, there's this tension, this world's not it, I'm not satisfied, we just pacify ourselves with entertainment. We go turn on Netflix and we forget about this feeling of discontentment again. And we end up in this cycle where we're so focused on here that we miss the opportunity to do anything for God. <laughs> we, we miss the chance to focus on things above, to set our mind on the things above and serve the Lord here and now. I think the hard truth that this makes us grapple with is that if we don't ever feel this groaning, if we're happy and comfortable with our lives as they are, if we're not looking forward to the return of Christ, we really do need to question if we know and believe the truth of the gospel. Because if the Holy Spirit is a down payment that helps us to look forward and see that, I think we have to question if that down payment is in us if we're not looking forward to what is coming. True followers of Christ should be ever looking forward and ever looking upward in the hope of Christ's second coming. That hope is key. We see in verses 24 and 25. For in this hope, this hope of the redemption of our bodies, of this fuller adoption, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So again, hope here is confident expectation. We confidently look forward to what is coming. That's what it means to hope in Christ to fully believe that he is coming, and as Paul says, to wait for it 
with patience. And that's the hard part. I'm sure many of you are, are older than me and older enough to remember um, kind of that weird era where it felt like there was always guys on TV claiming they knew the date of the second coming, just like all the time, claiming it was this date and then that one would pass and they'd set a new one and they're pulling all this weird math from the Bible that is not there and just crazy stuff, right? But it was because they didn't have this patience. They wanted it to be then and now. They, they couldn't wait in patience. But Paul says that the patience is key. We have to confidently expect that it's coming and be ready to wait. It's very likely that everybody in this room is dead before Christ's second coming. Or it could happen tomorrow. Or it could happen six centuries from now. We don't know. So we wait with patience and we confidently expect that that time is coming. And Paul continues, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. When I was preparing this sermon, I got really tripped up on that word likewise. I always like to be able to track with the, the, the flow of argument in a passage, especially if I'm going to preach it. I want to make sure I understand what the author was trying to do. And I wrestled with that word likewise a lot. I could not figure out what Paul was trying to compare, what he was saying was alike to another thing, uh, until I finally took my own advice and looked at the passage in context. And I went back and I remembered that he is writing about suffering. Right? He's, he's building on this idea that... that um, considering or the idea of suffering and that he's considering that the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the coming glory. So his point as he transitions into the section with the word likewise is to say that in the same way that our hope in Christ's return and the renewal of all things sustains us, likewise the spirit of God within us helps us in our weakness. So we are sustained by our confident expectation in what is coming but we are also sustained in the same way by the Holy Spirit living inside of us. It's a beautiful sentence. Really, these, these verses, again, are some of these crazy promises that I was talking about in Romans chapter 8. The reformer John Calvin, writing about these verses, says that the faithful may not make this objection, that they are so weak as to not be able to bear so many and so heavy burdens. He brings before them the aid of the Spirit, which is abundantly sufficient to overcome all difficulties. There is then no reason for anyone to complain that the bearing of the cross is beyond their own strength, since we are sustained by a celestial power. And there is great force in the Greek word used, which means that the Spirit takes on himself a part of the burden by which our weakness is oppressed, so that he not only helps and secures us, but lifts us up as though he went under the burden with us. So to clarify, this word for the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Literally, the Greek word has behind it this idea of bearing up under a load with somebody, right? Of seeing someone over-encumbered and trying to carry and getting up underneath and lifting part of it for them. That's what the Spirit does for us, Paul says. He lightens the load on us. He bears it with us. And how does he do this? He intercedes for us which 
that's kind of crazy. Because So Paul says that, that we don't know how to pray. <laughs> it's kind of funny. We don't pray for things as we ought. And I'll admit before anyone else here that that label applies to me. I don't pray nearly as much as I should, and I'm sure that my prayers are selfish more often than I would care to admit. So I know that I don't pray rightly. I, I agree with Paul's statement here that that's something that I fail to do very frequently. But, he says, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf and prays for the perfect will of God the Father to play out in our lives. And he, he kind of does this little play on words here. He talks about creation groaning, and then he talks about us groaning, and then he talks about the Spirit groaning from within us, which I think is his way of saying that the Spirit is praying for us constantly in a way that we might not even notice. It's just this silent thing that's always going on. And really, this is an incredible truth. The Spirit of God living inside of us, interceding on our behalf, praying for us constantly. You know, this means that when we don't know how to pray, and I'm sure we've all had those moments, something happens and you just have no way to process it. And you're looking at the situation, you're saying, God, I don't even know. I don't know what to pray for. I don't know how to pray for it. This tells us we can actually say, God, your spirit is interceding right now correctly. I'm in agreement with what he's praying for. I'll take that. He's correct. Let's go with it. And we can also be sure that there's always somebody praying for us. I had the privilege of growing up in a family that in both directions, both my mom and my dad's side, there was a long line of, of Christian families. So I had grandparents who I know pretty much pray for me every single day. Um, but I mean, for people who maybe are the only Christian in their families, people who maybe against their family's wishes choose to take a step of faith and become a believer, they always have someone praying for them too. Even as their family might resist the decision that they have made, the Holy Spirit living inside of them prays for them constantly, interceding and asking for God's perfect plan for them. This also shows us how well the Spirit knows us and how much He cares for us, that He is able to intercede and pray constantly for our good. And this ultimately is the context of maybe the most often repeated promise in all of Scripture. Right? This is how Paul builds to it. The Spirit prays for us according to the perfect will of God, and for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So that happens. That promise exists because the Father listens to the prayers of the Spirit and acts in accordance with them. That's why that promise is even possible, because the Holy Spirit indwelling us is praying for us. So we should notice two things about this promise. First of all, those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose are for Paul two ways of talking about the same group of people. So those who God calls according to his purpose are those who love him. The second thing to notice, and maybe the harder truth in here, is that this promise has a very clear caveat on it, that all things work together for the good of those who love God which for us as believers is incredible. It's not a promise to all of humanity. God does not ultimately work for the good of those who don't love him. He works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I think this should make us ask the question of who defines good? Because, at least personally, I could say that if it was me, I would have prayed for a whole lot of really 
dumb things at this point that I thought were good. Um, it's really important to note that this is not a gospel of prosperity. When, when God says that all things work together for our good, he is not saying that we are going to live in this world perfectly healthy, rich, family lives perfectly sorted out. If you ever hear someone preach that from the stage, if you ever hear me preach that from the stage, leave the church. That is false. God works for what he sees as ultimate good, not what we see as good in a moment. So that might mean that what is ultimately for our good is not to be healthy, is not to be rich, is not to have a perfect family life. But we can trust that every bit of suffering that we face is aimed by God towards our greatest good as believers in Christ. And what a truth for a year, for two years like this. Because it's true not only for individuals, but also for the church, the global church. So somehow, in some way that we likely will never understand, COVID was for the good of the church and for the good of each one of you as believers in Christ. Somehow the isolation, the lack of spiritual community, the divisiveness, the drought that we faced this summer, the flooding in BC, somehow all of these things are for the good of God's people, even though we can't see it. That's how amazing our God is. That's how powerful our God is. That he's able to give us not what we want, but ultimately what we need. He gives us the things we likely wouldn't choose for the outcomes that we would never give up. He's all-wise and all-powerful. So we can trust the decisions he makes. When the Spirit prays for our good from within us, we don't know what he's praying, but we can agree with it. We know that we should, because what God intends will happen in accordance with what the Spirit is praying for us. And then this truth, right here, Romans 8.28, leads into what has been called by some the golden chain of salvation, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So five words. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Um, for those of you who are more theologically astute, you know the minefield I'm currently stepping into, so I'm just going to put the caveat out there. Um, I have to be faithful to what I believe the Word of God is teaching. There are very solid Christians, brothers and sisters of mine in Christ, who will disagree with the interpretation that I'm going to put before you now. That's okay. They're controversial verses. I am going to preach what I believe the Word teaches, and I'm confident that other people will have scriptural reasons for why they disagree with me, and that's okay. So, there you go. That, that'll set us up for this moment. So, five words. First one, foreknew. It's the first word we get. So, there are some different views on what this means. For me, I want to frame it on how Paul would have seen this word used in the Old Testament. When, when God talks about knowing someone, what does he mean by that? So, we'll jump around to a few places in the Old Testament, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. So, Genesis chapter 18, speaking of Abraham... We read, God, God speaking about Abraham says, For I have known him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised uh, to him. 
And then in Jeremiah chapter 1, the call of Jeremiah as a prophet, God says to him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then in Amos chapter 3, speaking of the nation of Israel, God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. So based on those three verses, we see that it can't just be a general knowledge of somebody, right? For God to say that he has only known Israel makes no sense if it's just about, oh, I acknowledge that you exist. I'm aware of your presence. There's something more. And so when we see this pattern with Abraham and then with Jeremiah and then with the nation of Israel, I think that a good working definition for when God says that he has known someone in the Old Testament means a meaningful personal relationship based on God's choice with no human involvement. So that's kind of my working definition for what it means when God says that he has foreknown people. Second word, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Or, to word it a little bit differently, determined to be sanctified from before the beginning of time. This is one of those controversial ones. So I would say that that word predestined means exactly what we would think it does in English. Um, And Paul builds on this by saying that he has predestined them to be conformed to the image of Christ so that Christ could be the firstborn among many brothers. So this is important because this isn't about birth order, right? We know this. Yes, Christ was born as a human on earth, but Christ as God was never born. He eternally existed. So it's not about birth order. It's, It's a cultural thing. This is about a position of authority, and about uh, an amount of inheritance received. When Christ is called the firstborn, it means that he gets the big chunk of the inheritance. That's how the culture worked back then. He gets the double portion. He gets the big amount. And we, as his brothers, again, an important distinction because the male heirs were the ones who received the inheritance, we receive this inheritance as well, just Christ gets the bulk of it, which is good. That's what we should desire for the one who is worthy of everything but we inherit with him everything that belongs to the Father, which is everything for what it's worth. It's a pretty darn big inheritance. Um, But it's important that Christ remains the head of this family. Word three, called. Personally called by the Father, or to the Father by the Spirit in response to the work of the Son. And I think this is a call that you can't possibly resist when you see it for what it is. And and for those of you um, who have experienced relationship with Christ, you'll get this. Because it's not like you saw the beauty of Christ and the incredible promises offered by God and went, maybe, maybe I want that. I'll think about it. No, you saw the beauty of Christ and you went for it. You knew that that was the only thing that was worth going for, right? That's the the parable of the pearl of, uh, of great price, right? The guy goes, finds it in the field, sells, or the treasure, sorry, finds the treasure in the field, sells everything that he owns so that he can get that treasure. He knows. That's all he needs. So that's called. Justified. One of my favorite words in all of scripture. Your sin taken away, placed on Christ. Christ's righteousness placed on you so that you don't earn anything. Any bit of righteousness that the Father sees in you was from Christ. You can't earn it. You can't make it up. Your righteousness, as Isaiah says, are like dirty rags. But Christ takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness so that before the Father you can be seen as innocent. And then finally, 
glorified. This book ends with verse 18, like I was saying earlier. And once again, we get a bit of this already, not yet. Because there's a sense in which we're glorified now. That's what it says right here. But there's a sense in which there's a greater glory coming. When we are fully remade. When we are made right. When we are perfected when Christ returns. So why this chain? Why is it called the golden chain? I think because it offers us full assurance of salvation. And, in light of everything else in this section, full assurance of salvation regardless of how much suffering you may face. There's, there's no breaking the chain. Every link is perfectly put together. So what Paul is saying is that if you were, were foreknown, you were predestined. If you were predestined, you were called, called justified. If you were justified, you will be glorified. There's no falling off. There's no breaking the chain. Christ will undoubtedly save his people. We can rest in full assurance. There's, there's nothing for us to earn. We couldn't possibly earn it. We, we can freely admit that we are not good enough. Right? We live in a culture that wants us to, to continue to strive, to be better, to be... No, we aren't good enough. Our righteousness cannot attain to the righteousness of God. We can freely admit that we can't earn it. We would never have any hope that we are paupers and that we are given an incredible gift by Christ to be restored to the Father. This also teaches us that we are sustained not by our own feeble faithfulness, which I think a lot of you understand when I say that, right? Many of you have been believers for a lot longer than me, but there's always times of wavering, times of doubting, times of wondering if you're a little bit crazy, times of really wrestling with scriptural truths. Our own faithfulness is pretty feeble. If our salvation was grounded in our faithfulness, I think we'd all be doomed. But our salvation is grounded in God's faithfulness to his promises to save his people. So there's a lot in these verses. And as I close, I just want to do my best job at summarizing a lot in about a paragraph, to trace through all of Paul's logic and kind of see how he gets where he gets. So verses 16 and 17 set us up by making it clear that Christians will suffer in order to be glorified with Christ. But as Paul considers, it is clear to him that the suffering we face now is not remotely comparable to the glory that is coming for those who are in Christ. He is sure of this because both mankind and all of creation groan under the brokenness of the current world, but understand that something greater is coming. Everything will be totally restored when Christ returns and his people are glorified. We know that this isn't how things are supposed to be, but the world will be restored, our bodies will be restored, and our adoption as children of God will be made even more complete. This hope sustains us through the sufferings of this present life, but not this hope only. The Spirit also sustains us as he carries us in our weaknesses and prays from within us that God's perfect will would play out. Therefore, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, because the Spirit's prayer will of course be answered, and the ultimate good of believers is always secured, because those whom God foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he has glorified, and will glorify more fully when Christ returns. Now is normally the time as a pastor where you try to think of some nice eloquent words to wrap something like that up. 
I can't beat Paul's own words, so as we close, I'm just going to read the final verses from Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, which it's worth pointing out within 10 verses we get the promise that the Spirit is interceding for us and that Christ is interceding for us. Two persons of the Trinity interceding on our behalf constantly. Crazy. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this is true, that we are fully secured in the work of your Son that your spirit in us is the promise of all of these things for us. Father, help us to respond in obedience, in love toward you. Help us to trust your providential plan, even when we don't see good outcomes. And help us to live as those who know that this world is not what it's supposed to be. That there is a greater joy coming both to the earth that we are living on now and to us as believers. Lord, don't let us become satisfied with what is not complete. Help us to look forward to the time when it will be made perfect. Amen.